We Saw a Thing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. We, we saw a thing and talked about it. This week, the guys talk about Three Tin to You Ma. The following conversation has been edited for brevity. Are you a Western fan? Like, I don't think we've ever talked about Westerns. No. I'm not I'm not into westerns at all. It's not a genre that I go to. I find them boring. Okay, and it is uh it's like one of my absolute favorite genres ever. Like I read western stories. Yeah, see and I knew this about you, so I'm very very curious what your take is on these two movies because I liked one of them and I loved the other and that surprised me for both of these movies. Yeah, okay. So I'm I'm in the same boat. And this is a very rare moment. Yes. Because the one I absolutely loved was the remake. Yes. And I think it's because they used the extra 30 minutes in such a way that built a world, a Western world of realities and characters like no other Western that I've seen before. Even like... The granddaddy Western of Unforgiven, which I absolutely adore, does not have the character level in Eastwood's character that Crow and Bale explore in 310 to Yuma 2007. The only other Western that I've seen that I have loved as much as 310 to Yuma, the remake, was No Country for Old Men. There was such a similar character-driven narrative, and I loved it. I loved the changes they made, the changes they made, and we talk about this all the time because so far in our run with this series— the changes that have been made in the remakes haven't always been beneficial to the overall feeling of the movie, but in this one, all of them worked. To have Christian Bale's character have lost a limb in a in the war uh, and have that be kind of embarrassing for him so that there's some conflict between him and his eldest son, that worked so much better. The kids were super annoying in the original, and they served basically no purpose. And to have them do like this like road trip part where just this ratcheting tension between Christian Bale and and this outlaw and and so when it comes to the end and they're they've bonded they've learned who each other are in the original movie we had kind of a bottle episode where most of the big tension moments happened between those two characters just sitting in a hotel room which was incredibly effective but it was way less effective than the remake I want to touch a little bit on what you just said because these are some shitty, shitty children. <laughs> like, these are awful, awful kids. They suck. They're so whiny. And, like, I, I found that that happened from the original into this one as well. Obviously, the whiny kid totally is embarrassed of his father even more so in the remake. But these are awful children. Like, I, do n- I never want to have a teenager because, wow, you are the worst. <laughs> How can you not understand what your father is trying to do to keep you safe? But to your point, they used the extra 30 minutes in the remake so effectively to make those relationships interesting. Everything that was good about this movie was character driven. All of it. Like, the, sure, there were some, like, fun gunfights in, like, in the opening heist when the when the guy, like, looks over and shoots the horse that's got the dynamite and it explodes. Like, that was super impressive. Like, there were some really cool action moments in both movies, really. I mean, the stunt 
stunt work at the end of the original was quite good too, but it was all character driven, all of it, which I found really unique because when I was talking to my family about the fact that I was watching 310 to Yuma for this podcast, my two 14 year old nephews were both like, really, can we come over and watch with you? And I was like, sure, (laughs) thinking they were probably going (laughs) to find it boring or they were super into it. They loved it. And for 14-year-olds to sit through a two-hour movie that's mostly dialogue and character-driven, it was incredibly imp- – I mean, it just showcases what a strong film this was. And a part of that strong film, we have to say, goes to Ben Foster. Ben Foster in this movie is one of the scariest characters. Oh, he's so good. He is – In the original movie, he's a throwaway, that character. He's just like the secondhand guy, and he's a throwaway character. But Charlie in the 2007 310 to Yuma is a force. Do not mess with Charlie. And I'm so glad they let it have more space because then we get the ending that we do not get in the original. Oh, so good. Which is so different from the original and so... Like, I liked the original's ending as well. Um, I was like, oh, they made it onto the train. Like, and then the horses are waiting there and Annie's there and it starts to rain. I'm like, oh, that's such a great win for Dan. And it's really great that uh, Ben let that happen for Dan. And I'm like, that's awesome. In the remake, to have him gunned down and then for Ben Wade to get off and shoot Every single member of his team for doing that. Holy crap. It's unbelievable. And the hurt in Ben Foster's eyes as the person he like clearly loves Mm -hmm. shoots him and then shoots him again. And just like the bewilderment of like, why? Holy crap. What a scene. I will say the thing that I liked least about the original was some of the acting, especially the guy who played Ben Wade. But Russell Crowe was phenomenal as Ben Wade. I bought the whole thing. I bought his flirtation with women. I bought that his posse would follow him to their deaths. I bought the loyalty there. There was something to that character that he brought to the table that was just next level. And without acting at that caliber for this kind of story, it would have all fallen flat, especially for Ben Foster, that scene you just talked about. I agree with what you're saying. Like, obviously, I think Crow, his character goes into more depth and we hear about his mother at the end of the film and there's a lot going on there. I still think Glenn Ford was a very unique person for a 1950s Western because most bad guys are just bad guys. He was really playing in the gray And I I did a little research on this. This is what's called a revisionist Western, which basically to us is the anti-hero film. And it was one of the first anti-hero films. So it wasn't called that. It was called a revisionist Western, where you played with this morality. It's 1957. You pay your ticket to go to the theater show and you're expecting a kind of Western. And you see this guy who Glenn Ford is very likable, really likable as Ben Wade. And Russell Crowe is likable, 
but you know he's dangerous. That was the difference to me because I found that original Ben Wade wasn't charming enough in the moments that he needed to be charming, and he wasn't dangerous enough in the moments he needed to be dangerous. And again, I think this comes back to your point about using that extra 30 minutes effectively, but also I think Russell Crowe found something inside of this character that the original actor didn't. I agree with you that he wasn't very dangerous. I don't know if I would go with you with the charm and the likability. I thought they they played it differently, but they were both very charming. I will agree entirely with you that Bale's Dan is, it's just better all over than the 1957's Dan Evans. I don't always love Christian Bale. Sometimes I watch him and I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I'm just not buying it. Sometimes I watch him and I'm like, yes. But in this, I am in 110%. His quiet demeanor? How do these children not respect their father? I respect him so much when I'm watching because of that quiet inner thought. I mean, Christian Bale's this really interesting actor because he seems to really throw himself into roles. But I'm with you. I don't always enjoy his performances. Sometimes he's great and other times he's kind of whatever. And sometimes he's just there. But the thing that I started looking at was James Mangold. Because I was like, oh, a James Mangold movie. James Mangold. That's interesting. Didn't he do Logan? And then I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess Logan was fine. The Wolverine was hot garbage. But like, what else has he done? And then I started scrolling through his director credits. This is ridiculous because Girl Interrupted is amazing and I loved it. Identity is amazing and I loved it. Walk the Line is amazing and I loved it. 310 to Yuma is amazing and I loved it. Day and Night was this weird little movie that's kind of quirky and I really enjoyed, but it's completely throwaway. And Logan, which I actively didn't enjoy, even though I see the artistic merit to it, especially the black and white cut. And then Ford versus Ferrari, which I haven't seen. Why isn't this a director that I'm like actively paying attention to because he makes so many things that I really enjoy? See, and here's where we 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 align and we don't align again, Chris, because when I saw directed by James Mangold, my initial reaction was, Oh my God, of course, that makes sense. Because I go back down to his earliest films and I'm like, Copland. I literally just saw this in quarantine on Prime. It's amazing. Girl Interrupted, amazing. Caden Leopold, can't remember it. Identity, (laughs) great movie. Walk the Line, great movie. 310 to Yuma, great movie. Night and Day, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to see it now. The Wolverine, yes, hot garbage. However, however, the Wolverine is an elevated Wolverine movie after the likes of X-Men Origins garbage. I will say the Wolverine has some merits and, and it's trying to do things in those opening scenes. Then you get Logan, which we totally disagree on because I think Logan is amazing and I balled my face off. <laughs> then you get Ford versus Ferrari, which is a great biopic and Christian Bale is stunning in it. And then I look and I'm like, you're doing the next Indiana Jones? Sure. Why not? I'm sorry. He's doing Indiana Jones next? I'm in. I'm totally in. You had a best picture nominated film with Ford versus Ferrari. I'm in. Let's see what you can do, James Mangold. Like, if I look at his whole filmography... I would say 70% of it, it is amazing. It really seems like the only movies in his catalog that I've seen and haven't enjoyed have been Marvel movies. (laughs) 
and Fox Marvel movies at that. They're not even really a part of the canon. Maybe I need to give Logan another shot, man. But like, uh, I don't know what it was. About. That's not true. I know exactly what it was about that movie. They took six cracks at that Wolverine can. And this is the first time they got it close to right, in my opinion. But I was so bored of the whole thing by the time they did it that I didn't care. So maybe with some like some space from it, maybe I would enjoy it more now. I should I should really give that another shot. Maybe you should, man. I don't know. But like the road movie epic between Professor X and Wolverine and it's not even really Wolverine's movie. It is about whatever the new weapon is. I can't remember her name, but it's the girl with the claws. She's awesome. It's her movie, as far as I'm concerned. With that said, this Western, the director in 1957, made the active choice, much like Hitchcock had, to go black and white. Oh, what a strong choice. I think it was a strong choice. It looked amazing. What a, like an amazing shot when the train rolls by and they step into the steam of the train and then there's a reveal. And the whole posse is like in front of them. It was a beautifully shot film. And there were a couple of moments in that film where, especially when Wade is talking to the waitress at the saloon, most of his face is covered and you can see and it's this very tight shot. There's a few shots in that original movie that I thought, wow, that's a really bold choice and not a shot that you would see in a newer film, but really dynamic. The black and white is awesome. You know, I love black and white. I love black and white photography. <laughs> I love, especially for like gritty stuff. It's so contrasty and it just adds something to a movie. God, what a what an absolutely gorgeous film. I'm with you on that. This looks amazing. Actually, in fact, uh, while I was reading up on it, okay, so you know those shots of the town and all the mountain ranges around where he's lined it up so that you have these great peaks? Well, he apparently colored those a little bit with a red lens to give it a little bit more depth, I guess, or or iconography in the film. He like obviously he he still wanted it to be black and white, but they were like, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do this and see how it looks. And I thought, wow, looked amazing. Those scenes actually really stood out for me. If you ever want to try something fun, you should take some photos that you've taken and put them through black and white filters that have red, green, or blue filters also attached to them. It highlights different things inside of black and white photography. I'm going to try it. When you process the pictures to highlight certain color spectrums like that, it actually dramatically changes how the photo looks at the end. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. That's actually a stroke of brilliance, really. I want to talk another uh, dramatic change. We're talking the casting of 2007's 310 to Yuma. And the original person to play Russell Crowe's role, James Mangold, always wanted Russell Crowe. The studio, however, had their heart set on Tom Cruise. Oh. Well, that would have been terrible. I, I agree. I can't imagine a world where Tom Cruise would be a good Ben Wade. That would have been actively terrible. Oh, that would have been so bad. It would have ruined the film. Yes, it would have. Oh, he can't. No, no. He would have been smiling at everyone all the time. Clearly, the studio wanted to lean into the, I guess, the charm factor. But like, that doesn't. Wow, that's so weird. Oh, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. Once Tom Cruise walked away, James Mangold got Russell Crowe. And then when Russell Crowe was on board... He's like Christian Bale. 
has to be Christian Bale. And they get Christian Bale unanimously on board. That was great. And man, then they get a movie. This is a great movie. It really is. (laughs) I like the original. I love, love the remake. And that is a first for us in this series. That's never happened for us in watching these movies like this back to back. It's so unique. When we're using the love, the love, yeah, you're absolutely right. The closest we ever got, I believe, was Fright Night, where we were like, okay, the first one's really weird, and the second one's better. It's more fun. But we didn't say love. We never said love. And 310 and Yuma love this remake. I will go back to this film. I loved it a lot. And that's again, that surprised me, because Western's not really my jam. Here's the other thing, though, because they were kind of, like, tuning it directly to me. Like, I got real excited when Alan Tiddick showed up because, like, he's phenomenal and he was great in this movie and he's great in everything. So, like, that was super exciting. They made a point of making Christian Bale's character more desperate and they didn't lean into that enough in the first one. So some of his decision-making didn't make a ton of sense to me. He jumped into it in the original real quick. Real quick. Super, super quick. But also, like, what the hell was with his wife just randomly showing up at the end of the movie? Like, that didn't make any sense to me either. There was a couple weird moments in that original that took me out of things just enough to go, huh? And then I was gone. It was difficult to get back into, and that's just not a thing that ever happened in the remake. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm with you there. The Annie reveal at the end of the original, I was like, come on. Like, one, who's watching your kids? And then two, <laughs> like, why are you coming to this super dangerous situation so that Dan can tell you, like, make sure to tell the kids I did well? Like, yeah. you feel so much for both Dans because they're just trying to make everyone around them too happy. Right. There's a great line in the remake about I've been standing on one foot, just trying to get recognized, just trying to get you to see me. What a heartbreaking scene. That is a cutting, cutting thing to say to your wife. Oh, and then at the end, his line about not being stubborn, they moved here because of, because of their youngest son's tuberculosis. That's actually kind of great. And then he's like, well, I just didn't watch you thinking I was stubborn. And it's like, we are in this absolutely ridiculous situation. Why do you care what I think? <laughs> it's just, oh, but it, but it works. It all works so very, very much. Having his oldest son show up instead of his wife was such a bold choice because that was everything that Christian Bale's character was fighting for was respect from his family, from his wife, from his oldest son. And so for his son to show up and be like, ha, like, check me out. I'm doing better than you guys are. And like thinking he's such a badass. And then having the whole thing just very slowly turn over the next hour and and then having Christian Bale die at the end with his son kind of holding him like that and looking up at Wade, who was this person that he was like idolizing for most of the film was so powerful. I was pretty happy that he whistled for his horse after as well. Yeah, that was awesome. Because I'm like, I don't I don't need you to be locked up. Like, obviously, you're getting out of. Yuma anyway, but I don't need you to be locked up. You're you're fun. That was a great moment, too, because you could just see Christian Bale's confusion of why is Wade just going along with this? And he's like, it's fine. I've been to Yuma twice. I broke it out twice. It's no big deal, man. Let's get you your money. Yeah, and it's, it's <laughs> such a great moment, but but he can't convey that to anyone. And I, I, oh, God, I just love, I love the moral gray area of this film of 
Christian Bale, of Russell Crowe, of The Bounty Hunter. Wade's walking around spouting scripture half the time. It's like, it's crazy the gray area morality of this movie. It's, oh, it's so great. But I also said it earlier where they're building this Western world. And one of the things that the original, for me, it didn't feel like a lived-in world. It felt like a set sometimes, which is totally okay for an old Western movie. Totally fine to show us that all these Chinese people are building the railroad. To mention black people as hard workers in a derogatory sense. To bring up the Pinkertons. Talking about all these historical things, for me, was excellent world building in the in the land of Westerns. Like I said, I am a little bit into Wild Wild West stuff. And, and the fact that they had Apache Indians... They talked about the Civil War. Did you fight for the North or the South? These were all things that at that time were actual things. These There were political issues in the Wild West. It wasn't just, I'm going to got, I got my land. You got your land. Don't come on my land. I'll shoot you. It was not like that all the time. There was a political problem and, and lawlessness where a marshal or a deputy could just walk away at any given moment because this looks like I might die, was a genuine problem. There were traveling lawyers and absentee judges, and it was a really hard place to make a world work, and it felt like that in the remake. If there's any negative I can say to the old Wild West movies of the the white guys versus the, the indigenous Native American, it, there's just there's no conversation in these older films about what was actually happening, where, yes, the government gave them their land, and they mentioned that in 310 to Yuma, but guess what? You can't just give me land. I've been here forever, and also this is my home. I will fight you for it, and that is 100% what happened. One of the biggest things of the Wild Wild West that made America rich was they wanted to boot the Native Americans off a specific point of land because they thought gold was there. And you know what? They went to war with them over it, and they found gold, and they made America rich, but they killed a lot of Native Americans. But not mentioning Native Americans at all, or that this is their territory, they're fighting for this territory. And Russell Crowe says it with reverence. Like, nope, I'm not going up against them because they fought, and that is, like, nope, nope. You know, the fact that uh, Christian Bale fought for the North, but it's, but the guy's like, well, we're in the South, but I guess it's owned by the North. That is That was language that was said. Yeah, and you could see the pain on Christian Bale's face when he's like, oh, this is going to make or break it, North or South. Uh, okay, here we go. This could end the whole thing right here. And that was such an interesting moment, too. And it's exactly what you're saying, right? Like, the reverence towards these indigenous tribes who were fighting for their lands and that they acknowledged that and that they acknowledged the rampant racism. It added to the realism of it, but it also acknowledged the building of something that was just fraught with like misery for so many people and made some people incredibly wealthy and provided this huge path. And I just find that it elevated it so much. Yeah, man, we're definitely on the same page about this one. I got tons of time for this movie. I will definitely be watching it again. you believe we we 
we come off of the day the earth stood still where we're just like, oh my God, I don't even know if I can keep going. This is awful. <laughs> and then we have this amazing breakthrough with like, yes, 310 to Yuma brought us back to life. <laughs> I don't even know what we have next week, but I feel invigorated. Like, let's go. Two more movies. Yeah. Dude, like this is going to be the pattern though, right? We're going to see some stuff we love. We're going to see some stuff that's just abject trash and we're going to see some stuff that's like really forgettable in the middle too but I think that's what I love most about what we're doing we're just kind of like poking at stuff and trying to see like I'm really enjoying this because it's such a film education for me I'm seeing stuff that I wouldn't normally see in genres that I don't normally reach out for and and that's broadening my horizons for storytelling and you and I both love storytelling we love good characters and good storytelling and Boy, did this movie have both of those things in spades. Well, and I love that you have your nephews coming over and watching these older films. It's really, really cool. Yeah, man. To hear that that is happening because I I don't know if there's a, a community of film lovers in the YouTube generation that wants to go back to 1957 and watch a black and white movie. They were very disappointed that I watched the black and white and 50s version without them. See? That is unbelievable. So they've made a point of telling me, please let us know what you're watching so that we can decide whether or not it's something we want to watch with you. And like, that's cool. I love that. That is fantastic. I mean, if nothing else, like come together for a movie night. I know Vancouver, where you are, is like reopening a little bit quicker than Ontario is. So you you have the option to like a, a little bubble here or there to bring in a couple more bodies, which is uh, very exciting. I can't wait for that. It's a potentially very exciting time in BC because things are starting to reopen and the world's seemingly getting a little bit back to normal as far as COVID goes, which hopefully means that, uh, you know, as protests continue, that people can be a little bit safer about that, which is a great thing as well. Definitely. I'm on board for whatever happens next. I don't know what's next. I can't remember what's next, but that's okay. Do you want me to look it up? No, no, no. We don't have to say it. You can say it on your little extra. I have a feeling I know what it is, and I have a feeling I know what your reaction's going to be. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. Go for it. The next movie we're doing, Jay, is Flipper. All right. All right. I mean, I know I did this to us. Like, this is, like, I did this to us. I, I feel this is my fault. We're going to 310 to you, buddy. Freaking flipper. But you know what? It could be amazing. Maybe maybe the dolphin fights some sharks and uh, they put a bazooka on its back and it gets really exciting and ridiculous. Who's to say it's not amazing? It's not going to be. And I blame you. But, you know. I can't. Oh. All right. I got to go find out where flipper is. Next time on We Saw a Thing. So, uh, as mentioned, next week is the Flipper episode. If history's anything to go by, we usually have a lot of fun ripping on crappy movies. Unless they're so bad it makes us sad. Yep, looking at you, Dr. Doolittle. We Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott. Produced by Shapcott's Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our show notes for links to our social media and credits. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts.